0: You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Anthony King. He is a professor of war studies at the University of Warwick and author of numerous books to include The Combat Soldier, Infantry Tactics and Cohesion in the 20th and 21st Centuries, Command, the 21st Century General, and numerous others. But today, we'll be discussing his latest book, Urban Warfare in the 21st Century. Tony, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. So uh, delighted to participate.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Tony. I'll try not to hold down my excitement for this talk because I haven't read a book so applicable to the podcast or so applicable to my work as yours. And I give it full credit, full like endorsement it's it's amazing people need to read it you can get it on Amazon i'm really excited to discuss it so but i thought before we start talking about the book maybe you could give us a some very basic background to who you are and how you came to study urban warfare
1: Yeah, well, I I mean, thanks. I must say, thanks very much. It's slightly humbling um, to uh, be interviewed by a combat veteran of urban warfare, and you actually thought the book was uh, useful. I mean, uh, I'm really pleased and honoured and humbled by that. I mean, in terms of the origins, I mean, there's a couple of stories that I could say. I mean, the immediate origin was quite specific in that, as you mentioned, I'd done a book in 2013, The Combat Soldier, And that had looked at the evolution of the infantry platoon really from the First World War to the 21st century to to, to sort of 2010, so from the First World War to Iraq and Afghanistan. And as part of that book, what I'd explored, and it was totally new to me, but what I'd explored and what I'd seen through the research is that Western forces led by the US, followed by the UK and France in particular, were becoming increasingly interested in urban warfare and particularly urban tactics. And so I was able to have a very interesting time plotting essentially the dissemination of what had been Special Operations Forces CQB, close quarter battle uh, tactics, uh, into the regular forces. And that that was very interesting. And it piqued my interest in urban warfare. And then when I went on to do the book about divisional command, uh, the book called Command, again, coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan, obviously, maybe we shouldn't mention uh, Afghanistan in this podcast, but coming out of the, the experience of Iraq and Afghanistan and reconfiguring themselves for interstate, near peer, peer warfare, Western forces, US, UK, NATO were thinking very much about urban warfare. And so, at that point, my interest in divisional command, divisional operations and the command of divisional operations and their urbanization uh, began to converge. And so while I was writing the book on divisional command, I was thinking, mm, the next book I do, I think, will be on urban warfare. The next project I want to do is on will be on urban warfare. And so that was the immediate origins of the book. It came out of my research over the on the, on the armed forces, on the tra- transformation of Western armed forces, which I've been doing over the last 10 years. Now, there is a slightly longer provenance. In the 1990s, I had a slightly different persona, a different uh, sort of role, in that I was a sociologist and a sociologist of sport. And there I did a lot of work on English and European football. And slightly comically, we might say that quite a lot of that work was on football hooliganism and football hooligan gangs in England and Europe, and especially at Manchester United. And so one might say, oh, well, with this urban project, I've gone back to my original kind of PhD work in the 1990s, where that was in in a way involved in we might comically say a low grade form of urban warfare and I've just returned to a topic that's always interested me. Um colleagues might criticize me for that or joke about that. But so there is a sort of there's an immediate and then a longer term interest in urban social life and urban activity.
0: Awesome, Tony. And I, I will say I've followed you for a long time. I found your book on combat soldiers actually years ago when I was doing research for my, my own book on just my own experiences. And when I hit that chapter about close quarters battle, the history of it, Battle Drill Six, it was amazing. It's actually probably one of the starts of my intellectual curiosity about our theories of urban warfare tactics, our theories of kind of why do we continue to do this and applying it in different contexts, knowing its history. And that's pretty funny about the football gangs. And I did catch that in your recent book about the Arab Spring and the use of the, the collective fan group
1: I couldn't get the football in as much as I wanted to but there's a lot to be learned about cities from just looking at their football clubs you know not even just their violent fans but i mean they are they're interesting urban institutions certainly
0: let's get into your book so urban warfare in the 21st century amazing the reason i do this podcast and i know that you have three main points you and i have discussed this about these problems in people thinking about urban warfare and this book is going to be a huge contribution to it about you know the idea is that you can avoid it. The idea that you'll be able to do your approach maneuver warfare work great, or even the the one conversation which I think I we'll probably start with is you know that not much has changed, and we'll be able to handle it when it comes with our current force structure, our current force design. So, how have cities changed, and what did you discover in researching for your book about is there anything different in cities?
1: Well, in terms of the cities themselves, so I mean, this question that you're asking has actually a lot of different strands to it. You know, it has this strand of in Western armies at the moment, there still seems to be quite significant resistance to an urban future, and, and still, you know, I've talked about it elsewhere, a, a predilection for maneuver warfare in the field. A sort of, it, it's more than a predilection, a kind of almost ingrained requirement, you know, ingrained preference for that as a sort of nobler, more professionally rewarding form of warfare. And then the issue of, is urban warfare new or is it is it old? And then the, the changing character of the cities. I mean, in terms of the cities themselves, I mean, my argument would be this. Look, if we're looking at urban warfare, there seem to me to be three elementary elements to it. There's, you know, the weaponry which armies use. And that's what a lot of People and a lot of commentators focus on. And there's, of course, which you just asked, there's the character of the cities themselves. And then finally, there's actually the size and the character of the armed forces themselves, a factor that is almost always ignored in the current literature, but I think it's absolutely crucial. I mean, in terms of this factor, the cities themselves, there are longstanding similarities in terms of cities. You know, cities are urban, you know, urban conurbations of the figure I put it on is no less than, or urban areas are no less than 3,000 people at a certain density, about 500 people a square K. And there's certain features that recur in the history of cities. But in terms of contemporary cities, the 21st century, the global city, I think notwithstanding these long-term evolutions of them and these characteristics that are similar, I would say there are a number of really important features of the contemporary city that give contemporary urban warfare a distinctive feel. And those would be this. One, really simply, cities are a lot bigger than they used to be. As we know, a half of the human population, 3.5 billion, live in cities, and the size of those cities has increased overwhelmingly. The number of megacities has increased vastly since the 1970s, from something like two to thirty-seven. But large cities of a million, two million inhabitants have become the norm. So at one level, when we look at the urban environment in the 21st century, what we see is just a lot more cities or a lot more urban areas and cities and urban areas are much bigger. And, and that seems a blunt and uninteresting point, but actually it's really significant in understanding the likelihood of urban warfare, as many commentators have said, and also its character. Now, there's a couple of other really important aspects to the 21st century city, to the global city. And let me just talk to two. The key features of the global city are this. It's got bigger, and as it's got bigger, it's become more and more interconnected with other cities, other urban areas across the world. So, you know, some geographers talk perhaps in slightly hyperbolic terms of a unitary planetary urbanism. You know, so there's effectively one urban area on the whole planet. I think that's an exaggeration, but there is an intimate integrated interconnection between cities and urban areas today, through flows of people, through flows of goods and services, the interconnections of trade, etc. And of course, through communication systems, that, that cities are interconnected in a way which is novel, notwithstanding that cities were always central points of international trade. Now, inside cities, a sort of interesting aside to this is that even as cities have become more global and externalised into terms of their their connections outside, they've become more heterogeneous, more diversified inside. So scales of hierarchies of poverty and wealth have increased. So there's a greater vertical diversity between the poor and the rich in cities, and also very much increased cultural ethnic diversification. So if you look at a city or an urban area today, it's not only become richer and poorer, but also diversified in terms of its ethnic makeup. And of course, these two things are interconnected. The globalization and the localization, the enclavization, the heterogenization of the city are interconnected. So that diasporas in cities, ethnic diasporas in cities, are increasingly interrelated with their home countries, their home ethnic groups, or with other ethnic diasporas in other cities. So what you see, I think, is something interesting: that you know, cities are cities, there's something eternal about a city, and yet the actual character of the urban experience in the 21st century is distinct, and especially in comparison with the 20th century. So I think the the cities today are different. And that's one of the reasons why I think urban warfare is both more likely and its character has assumed a particular form, which of course, I tried to describe in the book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to give all the secrets of the book away. Like, 'Cause we want people to, to read it. Of course, I loved your explanation of the status of cities, the changing in even I wouldn't say myth busting, but the debate on way people look at cities, whether they're these organisms that need to be looked at through their flows, whether it's more of a population-centric kind of study. It's all in there and it's amazing. And you know that I've discussed the demographical changes in my talks on the podcast. Uh, and the evolutions of cities. But that almost, I don't say it falls on deaf ears, but most senior military leaders or some people in the military will just nod and go got it. Yeah, more urban. That doesn't mean that's where I'm gonna fight. I'll still fight, you know, big armies on the peripheries of cities. Might be fighting for cities, I won't be fighting in cities. And of these three things you talk about in your book, the changes in weapons and tools, the changes of in cities and the changes of the battlefield. The size of the armies is probably the for me the the biggest of okay, Tony, that's a little new to me this comparison of the size of the army to the likelihood of fighting in urban areas. Can you discuss that
1: yeah, for sure, so we've mentioned already now sort of a little bit on weaponry and a little bit on the character of cities, but one of the decisive and obviously in my book, I prioritized it. Precisely because it had been so underemphasized in the contemporary literature and in contemporary military professional debates was the mere size of armed forces. I mean, you know, you've got to recognize in the in the late 20th, early 21st century, we're living through really very distinctive historical conditions when we don't have large armies. You know, the large Western armies were abandoned. Obviously, the U.S. abandoned conscription in 1973, but other Western armies have either preceded that, Canada and the U.K., or, or succeeded that. We with the move to smaller professional forces. Now, look, some forces have increased in size a little bit and have gone back quasi conscription. For instance, Sweden, Poland's increased their size, their army size a little bit, quite substantially, in fact, in the last few years. But in my view, it doesn't change the trend. The trend has been towards, and it, it's not universal, but it is a global trend towards much smaller military forces. And, and again, just like city size, it seems totally banal. But for me, it's absolutely crucial in understanding urban warfare that if we're engaged in high-intensity warfare and you have a mass army, if you look at the incidents of interstate warfare in the 20th century, mass armies necessarily form fronts. And most of those fronts are going to be in the field. You know, mass armies want to deploy all their, as much combat power as they can. They don't want to be out flanked, So they necessarily form large fronts. And you can see that from From First World War right through, in fact, the Gulf War of 1991, the formation of these large fronts. Most of those fronts are in the field. They are punctured by urban areas, but most of them in the field. And so therefore, the likelihood is and the likelihood was that field armies would fight principally in the field. And in fact, we can talk about it later, but a similar calculus operates for insurgency warfare in in a different way for counterinsurgency and insurgent campaigns. Although I recognize after Iraq and Afghanistan, especially after Afghanistan, the word is becoming as unpopular as it was in 1973, 1975 after Vietnam. But you can actually see a similar calculus that mass state forces, again, are able to drive insurgents into the field. Small professional ones struggle to do that and have struggled to do that. So my point would be, be that the mere contraction of armed forces, absolutely multiplied and amplified by the massively increasing size of cities, of course, means that armed forces will be dragged, whether they like it or not, whether generals want to fight in cities or not, whether generals like the idea of manoeuvre warfare or not, they will perforce by the size of their armed forces, by the size of their marine and army forces, they'll be driven into cities. And, you know, one's reminded of Trotsky's famous phrase, you know, and and you could paraphrase, you may not be interested in urban warfare, but urban warfare is interested in you. Uh, And what I'd suggest is, you know, if you've got a small army, as essentially all Western powers have and most powers have, the likelihood is you won't be fighting in the field, that you'll be dragged into urban areas where the decisive objective, the decisive targets are to be found. And that is a central theme in the book. And of course, as I'm sure we're about to discuss, the very diminution of the combatant forces gives rise to a very distinctive kind of urban battle, which of course is really the central point of the whole book.
0: So yeah, let's, well, one, I'm engaged in this fight as much as you are, and and I just find your viewpoint so refreshing on fine discount the growing sides of cities in your scenarios of any future urban battles and i think we'll discuss that as well as you're know, given peer on peer let's like you said nobody wants to talk counterinsurgency it's it's a dirty word let's not talk about it let's prepare for peer on peer conflict and then absent of that is still no reason to fight in cities so what do you say to the almost the opposite argument so one is we have to convince them that just by the nature of the size of militaries and the nature of the character of warfare, how there's no idea that this won't be pulled into a city, but then The numbers, Tony, that you're talking almost get thrown back on me as well. Like, right. I agree with you. Cities are huge now and we're so small, you know, a very large city. There's no way that my deployable force of whatever it is, whatever number, they almost try to counter argue me that the urban is the future by saying, because we're so small, we're just not going to do that mission, right? So I'm not going to send a a brigade or division into a city because, you know, that city would just eat that division for breakfast. It's just not capable.
1: Yeah, sure. And this is an argument that I've heard a lot. And and my point would be, you know, yeah, I mean, the future future is unknown. Empirically, you don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, it is possible that an interstate warfare would would involve significant fighting in the field. I mean, I thought the second N'Gorno-Karabakh War was interesting in that quite a lot of the early fighting took place in the field at range. But then, as you've so eloquently shown, one of the most decisive acts was the Battle of Susha. So, the war, as I kind of tried to predict in, in the book, uh, in urban warfare, did eventually converge on a decisive urban area. And you ended up with quite a lot of urban fighting in that area. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that the dynamic drive forces into cities. Now, I absolutely agree with generals that brigades and divisions get potentially swallowed by cities. I mean, look at the Battle of Mosul, the amount of Iraqi troops, 94,000 Iraqi troops, they weren't all involved in combat at the same time. But look at the numbers that get involved in combat. You know, you look at the British army, that would be more than the whole of the British army would be fighting Mosul. So basically, the British army could not fight Mosul, couldn't produce enough troops to fight Mosul. It's a very sobering thought. But the one thing to note here is is that of course the same things happened to the opposition. So the opposition is also reducing massively. So what what's happening is a sort of a sort of historical dissonance that people are thinking you've got to fight Stalingrad where the battle lines beset the whole city and you've got you know 20 divisions within the city fighting over the city and the battle lines could just beset as I say the whole city. The whole point is that the opposition is also declining in size. This is precise my point about the new of the urban battle that precisely because all the combatants are reducing in size, the battle takes place inside the urban area. It's a it's a fight for the city, but in stark contrast to the 20th century, it takes place not around the city or across the city, but inside the city, within neighbourhoods, within blocks, within the city. What occurs is the reduced combat forces on both sides converge onto decisive locations, and you get these, what I have called in the book, inner-urban micro-sieges, so that the battle takes place inside, enveloped by an urban area. And it seems to me both a very interesting and also a very challenging kind of operation. But to emphasise, yes, in a way the city will swallow divisions, but you won't be fighting armies the size of the Red Army in, in 1942. You'll be fighting similarly sized forces. And so the recommendation I would have would be to prepare to fight in the city for particular objectives in that city. And as I said elsewhere, of course, this move to an inner urban siege within neighbourhoods, within cities, within districts, also, for me, highly recommends that the defensive rather than the offensive, you know, the offensive was, of course, the massively preferred forum of warfare in the 20th century, especially after 1917. That actually, Western armed forces should be looking at a doctrinal shift of some significance towards a preference for the urban defensive, like, in effect, going back to the early modern era, effectively, of the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, where the defensive was similarly a superior form of warfare.
0: Basically, amen. I actually get this, like this, this knowledge, especially in this not shift, right? Because we, we've been shifting now for decades, but this refocused on, or this number one in our mindset is this peer on peer conflict. We need historical case studies. And we remember this in, in this almost in nostalgia World War II. Like, okay, fine, let's talk about those battles. You're never going to be able to p- repeat a Stalingrad. You're never going to, you know, Leningrad or Berlin. You just don't have the mass to do that. But as you beautifully have shown, there, there have been other changes in the character of warfare since then that will continue to push you into the urban areas and continue to fight differently than I personally think that most people are thinking that they're going to fight despite, look, you fought like this in Iraq. You fought like this. Here's the examples in the Ukraine. Here's the examples of Russia. And I think that's that third category, which I want to let you just open up on. I don't want to put it into buckets, but you know, this these weapons, the accuracy and lethality of weapons, the aerial bombardment changes, the firepower. There's a little bit of walls in there, which I love, you know, me and concrete, but let's do it. So How does that change the battlefield that these evolutions in not just the size of militaries, but the evolutions in the tools and the weapons?
1: Sure. I and mean, thanks for this. This is complicated and multiple, the sort of answers to this. L- let me start by saying this. One of the, the issues here, and this is a genuine difficulty of sort of genuine contemporary or historically informed contemporary understanding, is that it's trying to pitch the levels of analysis and staying true to the levels of an- analysis. So if you look at fights which occurred during the Iraq invasion in certain cities, you know, perhaps the Thunder Arms, if you look at subsequent high intensity clearances in countering emergencies or civil wars they look Really similar to Stalingrad. And the one thing to really emphasize is that there's no cleanliness to urban warfare in the 21st century. It is as brutal and destructive as it ever was. And so the idea that somehow we've obviated the hideousness of it all, for me, is, is a really dangerous kind of presumption. You know, the presumption that somehow infantry soldiers will be absolved of the responsibility of room clearance, which you pointed out very well. I mean, it's just it's not going to happen at that level. The fight is as brutal, as firepower-based as it ever was. But I think there are some very important shifts that emergent weaponry and and sometimes just the u- the new use of old weaponry has brought about. Let's talk about accuracy and lethality. I mean that for me has been a very important part, precisely because weapons are so lethal and accurate. And of course, accurate and lethal weapons have proliferated down to not only state actors but non-state actors. This actually, to me, adds to this coagulation, you know, the glaciation of urban warfare that everybody is armed or able to be armed with highly lethal weapons it means that necessarily it slows down the battle in the urban areas it becomes too dangerous too difficult to maneuver really quickly to, to engage in the sort of attractive model of swarming or raiding because the weaponry is too lethal and too precise so the very possession of modern weaponry slows that urban combat down. And you know this is combined with the fact that the armies are very small. So for instance, the Iraqi army in Mosul, Iraqi generals could not afford to lose large numbers of troops in a single day. On one day they did, but they couldn't generally afford to do this. So the proliferation, the intensification of firepower in the urban area has actually, in my view, accentuated the likelihood of these slow grinding operations. And it's also changed the actual geometry of them. You've mentioned walls. I think that's a crucial area. If you look at the use of walls, use of fortification becomes totally critical, both in fortifying if you're de- on the defensive, but the use of offensive forms of fortification, systems of, of circum and contra relation. so you build walls in order to attack the enemy and inconvenience the enemy. And you saw that, you experienced that directly at the Battle of sadda sitter in 2008. But one of the most interesting I think developments in terms of the use of precision modern weaponry is what happens above the city even the 20th century I mean there were quite you know close air support was sometimes used and of course strategic bombing did create an interesting space above the city but what you do have in the 21st century which I think is important and interesting the siege is not just a street-based affair it's not just a ground-based affair or as you've so eloquently shown a subterranean affair, the urban area extends to the, into the airspace above the city. And what you see recurrently in American operations in Iraq and Syria, in Russian operations in Syria, is the airspace above the city becomes a complicated architecture, an aerial architecture in which different kinds of platforms are flying or operating to deliver precisely these lethal precision munitions. And so you get this, I think, very interesting, topography of a localized siege at the local level, but a siege which extends up to 65,000 foot in terms of the air power. And of course, the availability of that air power, I would argue, Accentuates the siege conditions. Now, the one thing just to go back to interstate warfare, we haven't got an example of yet. What would an urban an urban battle look like if it was against two peers who had a complete armory of precision munitions and could compete for airspace? I think it would be pretty awful. But for me, if that airspace had to be competed for in order to be able to get your precision munitions to be able to target your opponents, I think that would slow down the urban warfare even more, that you would get a period of contestation of airspace before anything could happen seriously on the ground. So for me, the weaponry, the introduction of advanced weaponry hasn't speeded up war. the weaponry has become more accurate. the often the speed between the decision and the execution has accelerated in the last 20 to 30 years. but actually the operational effect has been paradoxical for me it's it's actually slowed down the tempo of operations and really solidified the siege conditions
0: that you've seen. Absolutely. And i we're out talking about this. Now you, your book is, is so insightful as it breaks down every component of it about this localized siege operation by open terrain maneuver warfare in the deep fight. And you you have to have this ability to do this positional micro sieges better with maybe different approaches to preventing somebody from allowing what i call these fortified structures and, and you you highlight so many different examples of them that become battles within the campaign in themselves like you said so it's not you're not fighting in a large front across the entire urban space you're fighting these individualized localized fights micro siege positional fights where you're preventing somebody from using these fortified structures that go above, all the way to the sky, down below, against you achieving whatever your objective is in the urban space.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's what I would suggest. And and in terms of going back to your question about you know what should generals be thinking about, I mean, one of the interesting things I found doing the research for this book, and in my research in general, is the kind of problem of abstract thinking. So You know, in the Cold War, NATO, especially NATO land forces, had a very clear problem. You know, literally a division had a 15k front or 30k front on the inner German border. And it was the problem for 40 years was, right, how do you defend that? Now, as that threat disappeared after the end of the Cold War, I know it's a tendency in military thinking to kind of, you know, go to the abstract of not to think about warfare, but to think about war in general. And at this point, I think, the abstract becomes a way of projecting one's worst fears or one's just presumptions onto the future. And one of the things I would say in terms of thinking about urban warfare and the problem it presents to Western militaries and indeed Western political leaders and humanitarian organisations is not to think in the abstract, you know, project Stalingrad onto a possible future, but actually think in terms of theatres, you know. So you look at the key theatres now in terms of interstate warfare, it's quite narrow it's Eastern Europe you know the Baltics it's in terms of land operations we're looking at potentially Taiwan God help us or we're looking at the defense of South Korea so at that point I think some of the problems and some of maybe the outrage of what I'm saying you know sometimes it does sort of sometimes upset certain people I think the problem is reduced in scale and the difficulty of the problem is reduced in scale when you move from just abstract what does war look like to What does this particular operation look like? Now, my argument would be in each case that it's likely to be heavily urbanised and prepare in specific ways for the urbanisation of that theatre. But I think that potentially that grounding of the problem within a manageable operational problem is the way to, to avoid the sort of kind of sort of visceral reactions, obviously always normally in good faith, but sometimes had when I've made these comments, but also I think would be helpful to people in understanding, okay, not being overwhelmed by the urban urban problem, but seeing what is the urban problem? What are the possibilities for urban defence in this particular theatre? And that's the sort of way I would practically recommend applying some of the things I was talking about in an analytical way in the book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we're not going to have the time to get into, I think, that last section of your book, which I really enjoyed, which is basically looking at, again, looking at all the popular things that have been discussed, scholarship that's out there, whether it's fractal maneuver and the use of swarms in your approach mega megacities warfare, this belief that the very near future is autonomous robots fighting their battle for us. And then don't forget, we have dropped nuclear bombs in the past. And these are, whether these are ideas or lines of scholarship that's out there. You you look at each one in in a very academic fact-based debate against them. But I think this last question that you just mentioned is important, especially for me, as we look at, okay, look, we all know there's many missions that all of our militaries can get, but we have to prioritize the greatest threat in the most likely scenarios. So of the peer-on-peer competitions that we think will prevent, you know, as much as we deter, got it. In our scenarios, there's four peers that we all know that Western militaries identify as the future, right? So it's either China, it's either Russia, Iran, North Korea. Of those adversaries, in likely scenarios, is there one that jumps out as you as this is going to have a huge urban component, no matter what type of war game you try to do?
1: That's a really interesting one. First of all, the depressingly most probable, I think, and it's the one that people are most concerned about, is some confrontation with China. And of course, if you look at the demographics of that area, it's highly likely to be, a, you know, on the demographic basis alone, you know, it seems impossible that it'll be anything other than a massive urban fight. And I certainly wouldn't say so that's impossible. But I think that one of the things with the Chinese threat, which of course militaries are you know, the American military is well aware of, that actually the prime theatres, you know, the prime domains of such a conflict would be maritime and air. And I certainly think that any I mean I hope it is avoided, but any, you know, rise in conflict with China would likely to be a sort of maritime encounter and a maritime rather than a land based urbanised one. But it is possible. I mean, in terms of the most likely scenario which troops were being engaged in against a peer. I mean, I think, again, fortunately, I think it is unlikely, but I think some, you know, people have been very worried about grey zone activity by Russia in the Baltics. And I think, you know, rising tension in the Baltics is possible. Now, do I think that major interstate warfare, you know, so Russian troops pouring across the border are, are likely... No, But I mean, that to me is a theater in which, you know, you could see the outlines of something. And I think the Donbass, the conflict in the Donbass is a useful precursor, a useful lesson that what to me would be the most likely scenario there in the next 10, 15 years would the Russian state would agitate among Russian ethnic groups in the Baltics and other parts of Eastern Europe or in a distance elsewhere. And you would gradually, as happened in the Donbass, move along a spectrum of internal internal insurrection, subversion. Towards more intense warfare. And and my point is, as you moved along that spectrum, that is a theatre in which I know that NATO are doing a lot of training out in the woods, and maybe that's relevant. But I mean, that is a theatre where, for me, the cities, it's not a heavily urbanised area, but the cities and towns would be, for me, the decisive locations, both of political counteraction and then potentially of actual high intensity operations. I mean, I think the sort of Chinese theatre that, West Pacific theatre, I think, is going to be a maritime air theatre. You know, North-South Korea is is a possibility again. But, of course, ironically, precisely because the force densities are so high, I would actually say a megacity war in Seoul is actually not quite so likely there. So the Korean example has a, an interesting sort of paradox to it. But essentially, I mean, I think in terms of land warfare, that Baltic theatre is the one, you know, obviously the Americans will want to prepare, and the Marine Corps is preparing for land warfare in that Pacific Theatre South and East China Seas. But that would be my prediction, with the heavy caveat is that predictions are unscientific and one must be very, very careful about them. And certainly I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be held to them. You know, the prediction of urban warfare. You know, you go back to H. G. Wells, etc., or Basil Little Hart. It's not that good how well people have aired in terms of their predictions. So I'd be cautious, but I would emphasize that conventional land forces would need to, in my view, look carefully at the issue of urban operations as not as a likely or an additional operating environment, but the most likely and as in fact, the preferred and when I say preferred, it might be the coerced operating environment in which they'll have to have expertise.
0: Well, Tony, I wish we could go on, and there's so much that we didn't get to talk about, so people just have to buy your book. Everything from this issue of you're not big enough, the rise of partnered proxy use, and we didn't get into the packages of forces and the types of capabilities that have been shown to be almost critical in these positional siege battles. And if you don't have tanks, let's say like you talked to the Marine Corps or the UK military, if you don't have this heavy protected firepower forces, you're going to be at a disadvantage going into this fight. I think I'll leave. And these are your words. These are not mine. These are straight out of the book. They resonate so strongly with me is that cities have grown so big that it will be difficult for forces to avoid them. The weapons are more accurate, the field more lethal. Non-state and state actors seek refuge in cities, and military forces are much smaller than the past. That really resonates with me coming out of your book, but there's so much in there that people can gain a lot about for preparing for today's wars.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you, John. It's a real pleasure to talk. I mean, my general principle from the book would be if you're an army in the 21st century preparing for urban warfare, you want to be heavier, have more firepower, and more engineer assets than you ever believed was possible and then you might be just about ready for it.
0: Amen. Well, thanks a lot, Tony.
1: It's a complete pleasure. Thanks, John, so much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War 2 at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.